Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Before we begin, a reminder that you can sign up to my daily Red Box email telling you everything that's going on in politics for free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. Now, we live in challenging times. A hung parliament, the news full of terror and tragedy, Brexit in doubt, the Prime Minister clinging on, and it's just so damn hot. Here to take the political temperature on this week's episode, Jenny Russell, who says Brexit is already a mess. Ian Martin thinks he knows who should be the next Prime Minister. But first, Anne Ashworth, the Times property editor, on the lessons that must be learnt from the Grenfell Tower fire. The Grenfell Tower disaster has revealed that our building safety regulation may have some very shaky foundations. How are we still unable to determine whether the cladding used at this building was banned or not banned? As this new aspect of the housing crisis is exposed, we need a Secretary of State for Housing who is a member of Cabinet, and we need that person now. Now, Anne, obviously our thoughts with all the people who were caught up in it and the sadly the death toll is still likely to rise, but quite quickly the conversation moved on to how on earth this could have happened, and this focus on cladding. How, how confident should we be that cla- the cladding was the, was the problem? Well, I think the most worrying aspect of this is that nobody really seems to know. There's a complex interplay of roles, of regulation, of certification in any building process, but there doesn't seem to be a clear trail of what decisions were made at this building and how. And... I talk to an awful lot of people who are in development and they are just obsessed with the how things went wrong. And one of them said to me last night, there was a perfect storm of things that went wrong at this building, but why do we not mow more? And some of them are really personally quite hurt that people do not seem to have taken their jobs as seriously as they might have done. Now, but it also seems to me that no minister that has appeared to, to talk about this seems to have a firm grasp of the issues. Housing is too big. Why don't we have a Secretary of State for housing? I've been calling for this for a long time. I cannot see why it isn't a cabinet role because it's one of the biggest crises facing this country and a new aspect of it has opened up in that we do not know whether what we're building and what we're retrofitting or renovating, whatever you call it, is being properly done. And I think one of the... Obviously, there's been a lot of emotion and anger, which has uh, come from what happened at Grenfell Tower. But one of the really frustrating things is just to not know it. Well, who is responsible for this? I mean, if it was my house, clearly I'm responsible for my house. Because, But if you're living in a tower block, much of it is social housing. Is it the council? Is it the developer? Is it the landlord? Is it the per- people who did the work? And I think inevitably then... Maybe all the focus just turns to Theresa May because, well, who else to shout at? Well, there seems to be a long chain of deniability throughout the whole of the process when we ought to have responsibility for what has happened. And it also seems to be quite clear that in some circumstances one can approve work done oneself and also an assumption as one developer put it to me last night he said there is the danger is that everybody assumes that somebody else down the line has done the checks that the material is authorised and around I don't live that far from Grenfell and around those streets places are still cordoned off 
But these people are really, really angry. And that's spread out throughout the country. People, even in a perfectly, beautifully renovated Victorian semi in a very nice suburb, still want to know what happened there. And I wonder if the government quite recognises the depth of emotion on this whole subject. Ian, what have you made of the response to it and the, 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 this apparent lack of accountability for ultimately the safety of people in their own homes should be a, you know, something that is not in doubt? I suspect that it's going to end up being a different, in a sense, you know, more costly, really, um, parallel with the banking crisis in terms of how you can have a lot of regulation, whether it's good or bad, uh, but not really uh, clarity on precise, precisely who is responsible, uh, and lots of people ticking the box and thinking that they've transmitted that they have fulfilled their responsibility. Therefore, the job is done. And I think it's similar to the banking crisis in that a lot of what I'm someone who writes about the about that crisis, our most recent experience of something traumatic like that, uh, a lot of it really is down to people ask why why was no one punished. Why did no one go to jail? And the answer ended up being with the financial crisis because it was all legal. Almost everything that happened that caused the crisis was legal. Now, we don't know in these circumstances, but it poses then a moral question to the whoever decided to use that cladding, whoever signed off on that cladding, whoever allowed in Whitehall as housing minister that to be used, who didn't ask very basic questions. Uh, this stuff might be legal. Um, is it actually a risk? And that's very that's very similar to the banking crisis. Lots of people just sort of ploughed on doing what was legal, complying with the regulation as they saw it, ticking it, passing it down the line. And the end result in this case is not billions of pounds lost. The end result is human lives lost. And I suspect that this is going to become um, emblematic uh, of austerity, a parable of austerity, and I think is hugely politically significant it's a moment i think similar to the winter of discontent for the labor party and i think the cack handed response of the conservatives since i think i think they are i think they're, they are storing up for themselves trouble that is that is going to last a generation and more jenny what what do you think the government could have done to react better to this because there has been a lot of criticism of the way that Theresa may and ministers reacted to it but what in reality because it's such an awful event and it's so massive what what could what can a politician do in the immediate aftermath of that i'm sort of speechless because they did nothing and anything would have been better but the answer would have been so simple i mean i woke up at two o'clock in the morning i live very close to where this was happening saw what was happening on the news thought i could watch this from my top windows but i don't want to stand there passively and watch people die and know that i'm just being a voyeur and I just assume that because this is the most powerful um, city in Britain, in one of the richest nations in the world, you know, we're not talking about Syria, we're not talking about Ecuador, we're not talking about Bangladesh. I just assume that by six o'clock in the morning, since I already knew it about, uh, by two, that you'd have experienced disaster relief people there, that you'd ask if you, that there'd be civil contingencies people, that there would be people there making lists and housing people and providing emergency supplies and um, directing people to where they should go because my god you know we've got oxfam here we've got medecins sans frontier all these people operate abroad but they're all specialists they all know how you mm. behave in disasters it did not occur to me for one minute that in london 
we would not be able to do the kind of thing that we fly into disaster zones and advise third world governments how to deal with. And I'm just profoundly shocked. I mean, I was walking around there on Saturday for several hours and the place was heaving with volunteers and with people who'd come to offer help and they were carrying blankets and baby food and nappies and underwear and they were trailing around from help point to help point trying to leave this stuff, wanting to help somebody. They were being turned away at every point because there were enough donations and one woman had a sign up saying, we have many donations but no direction. And there was still nobody there from the council visible, there was nobody there from the government and the place was full of desperate wishes to help and, and tearful people putting up bouquets saying to my dearest dad and weeping at the wall and still no sense that anybody was in charge. How is it we haven't got a cross London Authority task force that is prepared for these emergencies, that a sort of government of all the talents at all these councils where there are surely enough professionals who know how to cope and some provision to call in the army pretty quickly. And as people have said, we have floods, we call in the army. Was this not a situation where we should have had that? And also, I think, you know, there's also been an awful lot of training and exercise to deal with terror attacks. Actually, that was one of the mm. things we saw both in London Bridge but in Manchester, how quickly those uh, processes kick in, both with the police but also the hospitals and that sort of thing. And this just, thankfully, for a long time, the number of house fires have been going down and that's always been one of the reasons why there have been cuts and that sort of thing. But then, so, so people sort of end up assuming, well, this will never happen, so maybe we don't need to prepare for it. And, um, but, the circumstances. But they, but they should have reacted, you're right, exactly, as if it were a terror attack. I mean, the numbers, had that been a bomb in Grenfell Tower rather than cladding, we'd have treated it differently and we should have done. And I think, I think the fact that it, it, you know, it happened at one o'clock in the morning, and I do, I do think, you know, I do question the, the government's response, but I think Matt makes a very important point, is that the entire focus, I mean, before this fire, police in London hadn't had a hadn't had a day off for two weeks the whole focus has been right? terror yeah and terror has been the defining mm. um disaster emergency um question in london um since the mid-2000s and it it worked the response plan worked very um worked very well i think what what really strikes me though and which i think is going to have a long-lasting impact is just how rich that council is that is the, one of the richest, if not the richest, local authorities in the country. It is a country. It is a local authority that has made a fetish out of uh, think tanks and uh, party conference events, of of proving that it knows how to keep the bills down and that it, it has huge surpluses and that it encourages private development, and it is uh, full of the richest people in the country. And when it came to it couldn't do the basics yeah. that any citizen expects of a local authority. It couldn't yeah. even appear and talk to the crowds when they gather yeah. angrily at Kensington Town Hall. And when you think, you know, throughout English history you've had young princes and kings yeah. riding out to meet yes. peasant rebellions and making people feel that they are heard, often afterwards betraying them, but that's another subtext. And it was just profoundly shocking because those people already feel that they have been treated like trash and then the response to this has proved to them that society pays them no respect and that they will they are not being listened to by the people in power and i agree with you and i think the anger out there is extraordinary and i don't think the government understands it so Anne, just before um we move on you wrote in the times on saturday i think that uh after whenever there's a disaster or tragedy like this 
the reviews and inquiries and recommendations and guidelines and then bits fall away and there's obviously a debate about whether or not uh, sprinklers should have been fitted whether or not alarms should have been fitted there's the question of of the cladding do you think that because this is so appalling that things will happen now that haven't happened before we always say lessons have to be learned but the mood of the nation is such this is such a big topic for people that they will be looking for lessons to be learned and lessons to be implemented and no idea that deregulation which always sounds such a great word will mean that all those procedures all those safeguards are swept away because nothing has happened i mean the lack of all fire in southwark proved that there needed to be measures put in place they were not done my case proven, I think. Can, can I just add to that, that when you look at the correspondence from the all-party parliamentary group on fire safety writing to one of the government ministers about 18 months ago saying, please, will you act on these recommendations? Mm-hmm. He's right back saying, I, see there's, I, I don't see any urgency about this. And you think, you're the housing minister. How can you think it's not urgent to stop people burning to death in, in tar blocks? One of the things I thought was really striking was Sajid Javid did a media round uh, at the end of the week, and he... He just sounded like a, somebody who just had no answers and sort of su- a sudden realisation that actually this being in government is quite a big deal, you know, in a way that normally we talk about ministers being up and down and moving from department to department isn't all a great lot of fun. Actually, mm. there are there are people who have been in government who have made a decision to delay looking at those guidelines and they will now have to be asking themselves really serious questions. And he was asked the question, how would you feel if you were putting your children to bed tonight in a tower block? And he, he basically said he'd feel like everyone else and, and wouldn't be confident in their safety, which is an appalling place for a cabinet minister to be. Yeah. His brief's too big. Housing should be removed yeah. and it gets its own Secretary of State. I'm going to get a T-shirt. I might even get a tattoo. <laughs> well, I'm sure it's, um, housing is an issue that we'll come back to again. But let's move on now. Uh, Times columnist Jenny Russell taking a look at Brexit. Yeah, we move straight on in this podcast from one mess to another one, from the one that's causing lives now to the one that's going to affect all our lives in the future. Well, we're we're a year on from the referendum and the government's Brexit policy is just a total muddle. Theresa May asked the country to back her vision of a hard Brexit and the electorate said no. And they took her majority away and yet and there's no majority in Parliament for a hard Brexit now and, and the polls are turning against it. And yet Theresa May appears to be carrying on just as she was before. She's announcing no change. She's starting talks in Brussels as if she had all the authority and the power to carry it through. And this is a complete fantasy. There's a real danger that we're just going to smash out of Europe because the time for talks will run out. So we've all got to start agitating for the Chancellor's preferred alternative, which is a long transition period, perhaps of two to five years, in which we can make the trade deals and the arrangements that are going to save us from disaster. Well, Brexit in uh, five minutes. Uh, so let, uh, let's, Jenny, pick up where we where we are right now. David Davis has been to Brussels. He's had his first day of negotiations and he stared them in the eyes and caved in immediately on the question of uh, the, the sequencing of the debate and we have to settle, basically we have to settle the divorce bill before we can even start talking about the rest of the and stuff. And the rights of you migrants and I have to say this is a metaphor or, or an example of everything that's going to follow. There's David Davis talking so tough just before the negotiations who's saying that arguments about what we talk about when is going to be the row of the summer. So he comes up there posturing, saying, I'm going to fight, I'm going to fight. And then he gets in there and realises there are 27 of them. They're one of us. We have no cards to play. Time is running out. We've wasted 
two or three months of it on holding this ridiculous election, which left us weaker than before. And he immediately has to say, actually, OK, we'll do what you say, because um, there's no point arguing about that. There are more important things to discuss. And this is going to be our position throughout. It's an absolute illusion to think that we are strong. We, we aren't, because they know what they want, and they're much more powerful than we are. We need the EU more than they need, they need us. That's the political reality. Ian, I'm struck but before... Uh, David Davis went to Brussels and he said he was going to get a deal like no other in history which is a really bad one. <laughs> slightly different to getting the best deal in history I mean it could be an historically uh, like the Versailles or just yeah. 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 like no other no other country could balls this up quite like we're going to yeah I mean I just think with the greatest respect I just think it's completely overdone I think our reading of it is far too narrowly British I think the story of the last fortnight is that the European Union moved in the most interesting way possible on the future of the Eurozone and conceded essentially it wasn't going to take back all Eurozone clearing, which is the key thing which happens in Europe. London makes the Eurozone go round. It swaps, insures, trades all of the debt, which is why Germany still wants to have access to London. So the beginnings of a compromise of that emerged 10 days ago. And then Davis conceded yesterday which I think we're in a slightly odd position if we're saying the government must concede and we must move towards a transition and we must soften towards EEA not customs union by the way but the EEA which I think is the position where we'll probably sensibly end up and then Davis makes a concession in that direction we said what well, disaster <laughs> we are useless but we can't do anything we're, mo to do, we're, we're moving and both sides are moving which is encouraging isn't it possibly because if there's one thing this government is not good at and obviously the, more more than one coordination one thing, leadership <laughs> expectation management uh, and we yes, saw it actually exactly. during the election campaign. Yeah. We, we were based with a majority of 200. Oh, look, I, I, the I, look I'm, not, I'm not here to make the case for, <laughs> but, for this being a brilliantly well-organised government. It's a complete shambles. But, the, but, the expect, but, but saying this is going to be the row of the... Don't build it up into this is going to be the row of the summer and then capitulate the first. That's why it looks Yes, bad. but, I mean, there's also, there's also in the second half of that stuff, there's then some stuff happening in parallel on, on trade. And there's also, behind the scenes... The Eurozone stuff is happening and that first paper has now gone off and is being discussed by other sort of stakeholders, terrible world, uh, word, across Europe. And there's the beginning of the emergence of a, a compromise on, on access to the City of London and the City of London's access to Europe because it's in mutual self-interest. And as I say, it's the number one thing which we don't talk about at all in the UK. We make their currency go round. The people who understand that more than any other the Germans, the German finance ministry is obsessed by this. German papers have lots of reports about it, but you won't really read it much in the UK. There's going to have to be compromise. And I think actually the story of the last two weeks is that we're starting to see that one will probably emerge. And I don't think there will be hard Brexit. Anne. So is that the plan then? Sort of compromise. You're asking Matt. Um, well, you I, might I, as well. I ask because this is, this is <laughs> my seven-year-old. Because so, this, this, this is a broader issue. Because the public would like to know whether there's a plan, and if it's not to indulge in more psychodrama in the Tory party, but to be able to proceed submitting to the will of Mr Barnier whenever and it's capitulation or submission or kind of um, compromise, all, compromise, compromise compromise is that is yeah, that the of plan? course and that was I, I have to say I mean, it, is, it, it will be interesting to see when we get people's memoirs and when the papers emerge 
precisely how the policy was formed, which people, which Jenny was saying, Theresa May was arguing for a hard Brexit. That was what she asked the country well, for, yeah. for a she did, mandate she, she did, for. She, she didn't. The, posi- the position, the position was well. The position was that the government was asking the position was that the government was prepared to walk away. Now, in terms of. But Miss, also from the single term, market and the customs. I don't for think the it was that nuanced. I thought that's what it was all about. You know, that's I didn't see any nuance in that. That's what the electorate thought. They were being asked to vote for a hard Brexit. They had moved on to other issues like social care, mm. like housing, the NHS. Yeah, they weren't clear. worried about Brexit. And when they heard hard Brexit, they thought, ah, oh, it's probably be bad for us. We think. I mean, I really hope that Ian is right because I, our only hope of doing well out of this is to go to the Europeans and be prepared to concede and make compromises and stop doing this ludicrous posturing like we're prepared to crash out or this is going to be the row of the summer. Because, of course, it's in Europe's interest and in ours. But our whole posture up to now under Theresa May has been aggressive, publicly aggressive. And it it's has, really alienated it has, people in Europe. I don't want to get into a, to who started it business. But as a... But as a <laughs> well, we end up then in the Faulty Tower sketch about you know invading Poland. Yeah. So we're not going to go there yeah. at all. And I'm very, very, very pro-German. Um, but if you think back to the aftermath of the referendum, and I, I'm a liberal moderate uh, lever um, who had to be persuaded and thought about voting to stay. What should have happened after the referendum, and both sides are to blame, is that there should have been uh, there should have been common ground between moderate levers and moderate remainers, which really amounts to, when you look at the polling and the practical political reality, about 70 to 80 percent of the country. But if you think of how l- that last year was characterised by Gina Miller, court cases... Thank God uh, for Gina Miller. Well... Giving Parliament a voice. But it's, hasn't it made it a bit... But I think the point is you, you it's made you, it more polarised. It has... It, yeah. the, the aftermath polarised it. So you had the leading voices of ultra-Remain. I refuse to use the term Ramona because it's insulting. But ultra-Remain <laughs> were essentially saying the public is stupid. They've got this wrong. They were lied to, which is the same as saying that they were stupid, that they didn't know what they were voting for. And that it must be... And that it must be stopped. I think in the most bizarre way possible, in a very British shambles, we might, and I emphasise there's a lot that can go wrong, we just might be edging towards a compromise out of this political Well, I uh, really chaos. hope so, because people like Philip Hammond, as we know, and Amber Rudd and Damien Green are all arguing within the government for a yeah. softer Brexit. And I'm only hoping that behind the scenes that Theresa May, although she said nothing publicly, has understood that there is no mandate for a hard Brexit, that she must compromise with Europe in order not to end up with economic disaster, and that Europe is ready to listen to her if only she will do that. But at the moment, we're not hearing anything publicly from her about the shift. And reportedly this week, Boris Johnson turned to her in Cabinet and said, do you still hold to your Lancaster House speech, which was, we're out of everything? And she said yes. Well, on the subject of Theresa May, because I'm conscious of, uh, of time, let's move on to uh, Ian Martin taking a look at the Tory leadership. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I think the question is, if Theresa May is almost finished after the events of recent weeks, and I suspect she is, the Tory party is the largest grouping in the House of Commons. It's pretty soon going to have to identify a new Prime Minister. So then the question is, who on earth should it be? And it's not a long list of candidates. I think Boris is too much of a risk. His colleagues have concluded that. Personally, I think it should be David Davis. I'm aware of his uh, flaws and, uh, and, and failings, but I think he's tough. He's the son of a single mother, raised on a council estate, made by the Territorial Army, by education and by business. And I think of those available, David Davis is up to the daunting challenge at the moment. So, I mean, David Davis is in a prime position in that he's dealing with the biggest issue facing the country. So if if and when Theresa May goes, you do need someone who can get a grip on Brexit. And so given that he spent the last 12 months mm. reading into it and, you know, years before that, thinking about it, that puts him ahead of, of other characters. It does. And I, th- I, th- I think what, what's happening in the Tory party is that if someone had been the obvious, obvious choice, a Michael Heseltine figure, perhaps, to think of November 1990, another Tory crisis, that person would probably have become Prime Minister the weekend after the election. Yeah. If William Hague had still been in the Commons, I think he'd be Prime Minister now. It looked for a little while as though Boris was trying to get something going. <laughs> the truth is he didn't really get any traction at all and people are very, very sceptical about it? the idea of Boris as a candidate. So things have then drifted on and I think it, it. I think we have to view it logically, which is that the Prime Minister is... Her authority is completely gone. It is not impossible that that authority can be recovered or patched together in some way for a month... Some people even think six months, but it, it it's inconceivable, surely, to see someone who's taken such an appalling knock to their confidence, who clearly doesn't want to be there and is staying there out of duty, which is to her credit, but really can't be Prime Minister for all that long. You then rapidly move on to the question of someone has to do it. So who is it? <laughs> so the person, it, it is not a choice from a fantasy um Uh, House of Commons choice of the perfect Prime Minister everyone who could potentially do it in the Cabinet I think it has to be someone from the Cabinet that the public has heard of, I don't think the Tories can try a complete who the hell's that outsider in the current um, public mood that being the case it pretty quickly whittles down to I I think Boris and, 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 and Davis, other people might throw in Philip Hammond, I'm just simply not convinced by that. People would say Amber Rudd. I think her having a majority south of 400 is in, in her constituency is a real problem. Beyond that, unless I'm very wrong, some people are mentioning Greg Clark as a possibility, as a, as a complete compromise. I, I think he's... I mean, he's, I, I like Greg, but um, the idea that, that, that all of this would end up with Greg Clark as Prime Minister seems doesn't quite seem extraordinary. Credible. Do you know 
I don't see any of those figures as having the qualities that we need currently in a leader. I think we are looking for somebody who can unite the nation, who looks as if they might be able to feel our pain and also comes from a place where there wouldn't be a massive reason to dislike him because from everybody <laughs> who, vo who voted Remain will have a certain resentment towards David Davis. Agreeable chap though he is with a ready wit. I'm just going to say the name Damien Green, de facto Deputy Prime Minister, remember, and who a man is known for being decisive. And I suspect that if Damien Green had st stood there in North Kensington and Latimer Road, the area around the Grenfell Tower, on the morning after, he would have been able to summon the words that were necessary. Remember, he has got, and I know from people who worked with him when he was in television, he is very much in touch with what people want to know and want to hear. And I think that may be a quality that's not now always essential in this role, but I think that's what we need right now. But he's, uh, I think that's a very good, very good point. He is a, he's a, he's a really you know top class operator. But you pose that question to yourself: if if he had done that the, the morning after, but he didn't. He didn't. And as a, as I, a I moment, was telling actually that Andrea Leadsom did, and as leader yeah. of the House of Commons, it's not technically her yes brief. And who knows, she might still. <laughs> she may yeah. well still I, I think he's illusions is, of being in terms of what's leader. left of what's left of Mayism in the Conservative Party. I think Damien Green is the Prime Minister's candidate mm. to, to succeed. Her. Do you think that's what she was doing when she gave him that job of First Secretary of State? I suspect so. It's purely supposition on my on my part. Putting someone an ally, ally like that right there, uh, so that if um if the stars align at some point in the next 6 months she could then potentially hand over to him i just have a i have i've i have doubts about um the tory party having a, a following one remainer who's crashed um with another with another remainer who's not necessarily known for his great leadership yeah. uh, qualities or his um or his toughness which i think i think the da the davis story for all of his flaws and he, he's taken some pretty eccentric decisions including resigning for that mad by-election which lots of people criticised him for I did at the time and and fell out with him quite spectacularly so he is, he's capable of making mistakes but if you wanted to connect with the kinds of voters who are worried now that Grenfell has collided with Brexit mm. and we have a country that's really deeply unhappy with itself it's potentially I just say of the available people there, David Davis, as someone who grew up on a council estate, who has a backstory, which is uh, he would have absolutely, and he's a toughie, he would have no problem going and being booed and trying to engage with the with the crowd um, outside Grenfell Tower. I think of the available options, um, I think he's I think he's the best. Aren't we looking though for a figure who can come up against Corbyn? We're thinking about somebody who, if there is an election. Could could be a contender. This is the uh, this is the uh, this is the argument yeah, so that I mean, Boris Camp have. You're going to be yes, populist with the populist. I think a gram, I think a grammar school boy, David Davis, um, from the School of Hard Knocks, might do rather well against the public school educated um, key Corbynistas like um, Schneider and uh, and um, Seamus Mill. So Jenny, are you a fan of David Davis, or have you got you are on someone else to replace Theresa? <laughs> I think if it was obvious to the nation who should replace Theresa, she wouldn't still be there. Um, 
Am I a fan of David Davis? I think David Davis is very entertaining. I think he's got a giant ego. I think he doesn't take a lot of things seriously. Um, I think he's a show-off. I'm not sure that he would pay enough attention to the detail. I think he could alienate a great many people in the party with his um, peacockery. I mean, but apart remember, from that, he's great. <laughs> well, exactly. I'm not sure he could fit all of that on his posters. <laughs> and, and of course, let, you know, let's not remember, you know, he, he went down in flames the last time he stood for the leadership. On the other hand, everybody else has tremendous flaws as well. Boris Johnson is a manipulative, conniving, unserious buffoon who doesn't even manage to follow his foreign office briefs or prepare himself in his meetings when he goes into um, into meetings with his cabinet colleagues. He's alienated everybody with that. I think he would be a total disaster because I think the only thing Boris Johnson ever thinks about is, is this good for me? Which is quite a short-term um, way to think about anything, but it's particularly unsuitable in a prime minister. Amber Rudd, um, quite good at politics. There are questions about whether she's good enough in operating the Home Office to be able to manage the brief of being a Prime Minister. Ruth Davidson reportedly doesn't want the job yet. I mean, God knows whether David Davis is the best, but I, I rather wonder whether you mightn't as well keep Theresa May, frankly. Well, I'm, I will speak up for Amber Rudd, because I think, I think Amber Rudd is... Uh, a class act and I interviewed her last year at the Toy Party Conference on stage in front of a few hundred people and she ranged she hadn't been in the job very long remember the job that she inherited from Theresa May literally the worst job to have taken on in government <laughs> and was uh, I've had a terrible disaster in this department which you've been running <laughs> yeah. so brilliantly so yeah I'm not going to change anything don't worry I'm not going to change anything she's, she in fact she likened it to buying the buying a house from someone and them saying oh have you changed you know have you changed much she said no I've left everything exactly the same <laughs> I've not even taken down the curtains so I, but she was very good she, she had a very clear idea about what she did and didn't want to do was quite happy to tell people like Boris Johnson immigration is my thing stop t- going to Australia and telling them that they can have free access to Britain post Brexit and all that. Um, and she talks like a normal person. She does. Which is a yeah. crucial... I think she's got... If there's one thing that we've learnt from uh, Theresa May's premiership is that actually... Uh, and Gordon Brown had exactly the same problem. People said, oh, well, you know, you're obsessed with personality and mm-hmm. emotional intelligence. That's politics. That's, you know, that's part of what you've got to do. And I think somebody who... And I think David Davis ticks that box as well, but somebody who can be like a normal but can go on breakfast TV and engage with people and engage with a room full of people I think it's really important she's just a little bit more Ariana Grande and that's what we're looking for currently <laughs> well that's what she's put on her uh, that's what she's put on her posters that's what we've got time for uh, this week as ever you can sign up to my morning email briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box subscribe to the podcast on iTunes on your uh, podcast app so it um, arrives every uh, week as soon as it drops but for now from Ian Martin Anne Ashworth Jenny Russell and me Matt Chorley it's goodbye Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.